Well, good morning and welcome to Edgewood Baptist Church. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing to our good and gracious King. the throne of glory nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious King I will give to you my burden as you give you my strength. Come and fill me with your spirit as I sing to you this praise. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice to the King in need of nothing. Empty-handed, I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome with joy, I sing. I am accepted. You're a good and gracious King. Oh, what grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend. Safe, secure in you forever. I pour out my praise again. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice to the King in need of nothing. Empty-handed, I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome with joy, I sing. By your love, I am accepted. You're a good and gracious
joy that we get to come and set our hearts and minds and song and praise and prayer and in the word later on a good and gracious king that we do get to come to a king who is in need of nothing but who delights in bestowing upon us every good gift that we need and in his giving he's not diminished he's not weakened he's not lessened but he gives he's infinite in his goodness and his mercy to his people and so we get to come and celebrate and seek today our good and gracious king and we pray that you're blessed through our time together if you're a guest, we welcome you here today. Uh, on the pew right in front of you should be a little visitor card. We'd ask if you would just fill out a little bit of information on that card, and you can stick it on the box or in the box uh, on the way out in between the aisles. And what that helps us do just helps us to know who you are, and so we can reach out to you and, and see how we can better minister to you. And we pray that you're blessed through our time together here today as well. Uh, it's first time back for the Overby family in a few weeks with Christmas travels and our youth trip last week. And we thank you for just your prayers and support in that. We had a great time. We go to Snowbird every year, and it actually snowed. Uh, we've, it's never snowed there in five or six years of going. So we actually had snow at Snowbird, uh, and we had a, a really blessed time. Fellowshipping, fellowshipping with one another, hanging out, having a good time, uh, but even more than that, uh, singing together and spending time. We spent time in First Peter uh, as the camp, uh, the teachers and pastors led us through First Peter, and so just a blessed time. So thank you, Edgewood, for all your support uh, for us and going there. And uh, just being back, first Sunday back, it's a rough one for me. I get to go hang out with the walkers downstairs in the nursery and my grumpy kids in there. So, uh, so after this, I'll be going down there to hang out with them. Uh, so. Just, we want to put before you a few things that the church, if you would, just keep in mind, if you would be in prayer about, um, and uh, where you need to mark on your calendar. So, as we pray for, for, for those in the church who are grieving, uh, who are experiencing sorrows, we do have um, just even more that we're remembering. We want to remember Dickie Sheehan um, and the loss of his wife. Uh, her funeral, Mary, Mary's funeral, will be Friday, January 14th, and that's going to be 11 a.m. at McMullen. So, that's Friday, January 14th. 11 a.m. at McMullen. And then we want to continue to remember Kathy Bowles and her family, um, the loss of John Bowles. Uh, his memorial will be Sunday, January 23rd. Sunday, January 23rd at 2 p.m. And that's going to be here in the sanctuary. So if you would, um, as you think to not just those two families, but, but so many here at Edgewood who are grieving and experiencing sorrows, just keep them in your mind, keep them in your prayers. Um, and where you can, if, if you're able to reach out to those people, a card, a phone call, and 
uh, just let them know that you love them, uh, that you are praying for them. That would mean a lot. Uh, I thought it'd be good for us to turn our attention to, in our time of scripture reading and prayer, to Psalm 23. Uh, just feeling this myself, just uh, I often need to be reminded uh, that the, one of the most common biblical metaphors for who I am and for who God's people are is sheep. Um, and as sheep, um, I myself, and I know we as people, we would attest to this. We're feeble, we're wandering, um, so prone to wander, we're so dependent. But one of the things that, I, that Psalm 23 reminds us of, and it's a good thing for us to pray through for ourselves, but also for, for Edgewood and for those, so many of those who are suffering, experiencing sorrows, is that while we are reminded constantly throughout Scripture that we are sheep and, and all that that means, we are reminded that we do have a good shepherd. Um, and uh, Psalm 23 paints a beautiful picture of who that shepherd is, is one who delights to care for his people to protect his people, to nourish them, to give them exactly what they need so that they have no lack. And even as they are led through the valley of the shadow of death, even there their good shepherd is with them, leading them, protecting them, sustaining them. So much so that as we are brought through that, we know, we are promised, we see this in Scripture, especially in Revelation at the end, is that one day we will be brought to endless feasting, endless joys. We know that's coming. We get to look forward to that. So as we spend time in Psalm 23, let's reflect on who we have as a good shepherd, the good shepherd that would lay down his life for his people so that we can pray these truths and celebrate these truths and, and, and rest in them, no matter the joys that we're experiencing and no matter the sorrows. So I'm going to read Psalm 23. After I read it, we're going to go to the Lord in a time of silent prayer, and then I'll close our time in prayer together. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you invite us, you call us to come and worship you, to come and set our hearts and minds upon you in song, in prayer, in the word, in our fellowship. We thank you for that. It is a gracious invitation that we get to come and worship a good and gracious king. And a good and gracious king that we also get to know is our good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So even as we are invited and called to come and worship, we know that so many of us in this room come doing so with 
just experiencing so many joys in life right now, and we thank you and praise you for that. But we also know that there are so many here and, and not able to be with us here today who worship you, who are setting their hearts and minds upon you, but they do so with tears in their eyes and sadness in their hearts and as they're carrying sorrows and burdens. But even, even in the invitation to come with all of that and to look upon you, we are reminded that, yes, you are the good shepherd who cares for his sheep enough to lay down his life for them. We have life because of you, because of what you have done for us. You, Lord Jesus, have taken our sin upon yourself so that we could be reconciled. While we were far from you, you came near to us to bring us near to you. You are a good and gracious king that we get to come and bow down before, to celebrate, to rejoice, even in our sorrows, even in our sadness. So, Lord God, we pray that you and your name would be glorified and exalted today, especially in our time together, but also in our hearts and in our minds, that the things of this world, that our cares, that nothing in this world would be exalted in our hearts, but that you would be, and that we would, in your grace and your mercy, bring all of that before you today trusting in you as our good shepherd who leads us, who guides us, who sustains us. And we know and we trust that you will bring us to endless feasting, to joys just unspeakable. We know that's coming. So Lord God, give us grace to rest in that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our good and gracious King is also our hope in life and death. So let's stand and continue worship. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. Is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand.
be seated. Appreciate Nathan for, uh, for leading us in our singing. He, where did Nathan go? When did you get the text from Andy? Last night. Uh, Harper had to, uh, was dehydrated, had to get some special attention. Andy's wife, Katie, was also feverish, so uh, it was looking tenuous that Andy was going to be here with us this morning. Then when it became evident that he wasn't going to be able to make it, he texted Nathan last night. So Nathan had to, you know, in less than 24 hours' notice, had to plan on coming in and, uh, and leading the music. So appreciate very much Nathan um, playing that role for us at late notice. With this being uh, a Sunday in which we observe communion, the kids will remain in the sanctuary with us. Um, we have a nursery for babies through four-year-olds. Um, if you have any kids that young in here, you're welcome to take them down to the nursery, but you're also welcome to leave them in here. We love having kids in the sanctuary, and we're okay with the energy and the wiggling and even the noise, Right? Psalm 8, last week, God established strength and praise from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, right? Therefore, we shouldn't have nursery at all. We should just have all the kids in… <laughs> Turning your Bibles with me to Titus. chapter 1. We are actually starting a series. It'll probably be a, uh, something like a 10-week series through the book of Titus. And this will be our… the day in which we break ground. We're going to spend our time looking at verses 1 through 4, Titus 1, 1 through 4. More specifically, probably verses 1 through 3. Before I read that, though, let me just uh, say, with, um, with this being the ninth, our regular evening schedule is, uh, is back tonight, so we'll have a water for the kids uh, we'll ha at 5.30 in the CLC across the way. We'll have our evening service here uh, from 6 to 7, and one of the things that you're able to do in uh, our evening service, we uh, spend a little bit of time in prayer, and then we open the floor up for some Q&A. Uh, if you have anything that struck you in the course of the, uh, this morning's message, uh, additional insight or maybe some questions that you want to ask, Sunday night is a good opportunity for you to do that, and then we spend a little bit more time uh, in Scripture, so would encourage you to, uh, to come back this evening. Some of you uh, have been looking anxiously for a sermon outline, and there is none to be found this morning, all right? The verses are brief enough. The verses are brief enough that I think we can, we can do it without an outline, and if we can't, well, there's nothing I can do to help you because, I, I, you know, I came up here without one. Um, but let me backtrack. One other thing. Also, don't forget, if you were not here last week to see our, uh, our high-quality, multi-million-dollar video promo for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? 
We did that yes, uh, we did that last week, and then we put it up on uh, the Edgewood Facebook page where you could see the uh, see the video and and hear it on at at the uh, the comfort and convenience of your own home. Amy Cartwright will be in the vestibule at the end of the service today with sign-up sheets. Amy, do you have something that you want to say? You're holding a sheet up. I can't hear you. Yes, they look like that, blue sheets, but go see Amy and sign up. If you haven't seen the video, Amy can tell you in very short order what this is about. It's a creative fellowship where we're getting in each other's homes to get to know people that ordinarily we wouldn't necessarily rub shoulders with. Good opportunity to build relationships and develop some new friendships uh, with people here at Edgewood. So definitely, definitely, definitely take advantage of that. It's going to be a good time. Okay, now then, if I've forgotten anything else, it's too late. We're going. Titus 1. Verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so it may sound a little bit different from your version. But Titus 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, or at the proper time revealed, his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as a good shepherd, we trust that even now, you are the one who will feed us from your word. We do not put any hope or any confidence in our ability to understand or to take heart or to take note of the things that you would have us to learn apart from the gracious work of your Holy Spirit who gives insight and understanding, who gives us the ability to appraise all things, to see their relevance, their significance, their truth, and ultimately to bring our hearts into submission to your word. We thank you that all of this is possible, that even the prayers that we offer is possible because of the way that was opened up for us by Jesus Christ, who suffered and died in our place to take the punishment for our sin, who was raised and resurrected on the third day, being vindicated in his righteousness and demonstrating that his sacrifice for your people was accepted and was pleasing to you. And we thank you that he ascended back into the heavens and is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning for the good and the benefit of your people, of which we consider ourselves to be part. Father, help us now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> Titus is, uh, is a book I would encourage you because of the brevity of Titus. You have three short chapters. It probably would not be a bad idea if over the course of the next several weeks you make Titus part of your, uh, your devotional reading. Uh, or um, as you have opportunities, if you um, get to the end of some reading and you're hungry for more Scripture and you think, well, what am I going to read? Well, let me turn back to Titus and read some more. Uh, I'll just say up front 
that in preparing for this sermon series, I don't know how many times I've read through Titus. Sometimes in one sitting, right? You can read all three chapters in fairly short order, sometimes a chapter at a time, but over and over and over again, you can never read too much. I think that's part of what the Scriptures encourage us to do when it comes to meditating on the law of the Lord, Um, that it's not just a cursory reading, but it's meant to be something that we sort of soak in and we deliberate in. So I would encourage you to do that, and I think that in doing that, you'll actually find that the time that we spend here on Sunday mornings will be more profitable and more effective if your heart and mind has already been given over to exposure to the book of Titus. All of that being said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on background at all. Some of that we'll touch on as we go through the series. But let me just tell you up front how I understand the, the book of Titus in a way that I think it would be helpful to consider or to read what we have here as we go through the series. There, there are ways in which there are themes, of course, that overlap throughout Scripture. So as you look at Titus, there are many things that that Paul says to Titus in this letter that he'll say, for example, to Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy, or that you can find in some of the other New Testament epistles. But one of the things that makes Titus unique is the emphasis that's laid on a particular theme, and the particular theme that seems to stand out both explicitly and implicitly is the idea that real truth cultivates godliness. I think what Paul is going to demonstrate in this letter is that anyone who comes to true knowledge of who God is and what He's done in the person of Jesus Christ, anyone who comes to true saving faith, anyone who is growing in that faith, that is going to be demonstrated by the fact that their lives are going to look different. Paul will say in many different ways that the things that Titus needs to impress upon the people that he is pastoring, the people that he is shepherding, is that they should be living lives that line up with doctrine, with good doctrine. You have good doctrine, you ought to have a good life. By good life, we don't mean simply good, comfortable, happy, but good in the sense of it meets with God's approval. And Paul sort of lays the groundwork for that, even in these brief verses that open up Titus, by saying in a unique sort of way, one of the ways that he views his role in God's kingdom as an apostle. God has given me this position. God has given me the authority that I have for an express purpose, and he's going to share that with Titus. And by implication, I think he is intending for his understudy then to take on a similar mindset. Well, if this is the way that Paul views his ministry, if this is what the goal or the objective is, then maybe that's the way that I ought to think about my ministry. And then let me take a step further and say that although there are no apostles seated in the congregation this morning, I can say that pretty confidently. There are no apostles seated here in the congregation this morning. There is a way in which we ourselves should imitate and adopt the mindset that Paul is communicating here in these opening verses. So, for example, Paul will say in other letters 
that his unique office and unique responsibility notwithstanding, he will encourage not just his co-workers but other lay members of the church to imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Join in following my example so that while Paul's authority and his office are unique, his lifestyle ought not to be unique. We ought to be able to see the way that Paul lives, what he gives his life to, what his objectives are, we ought to see evidence of that in our own personal lives and in this congregation here at Edgewood. All right, so I'm letting you know up front, I read these verses, and although I hear Paul saying something about himself, I am interpreting these verses in part because he's going to touch on some of these themes later in the letter I take it that Paul is intending to hold himself up, what his goals, what his aspirations are, as a model for Titus, and for Titus then to model those same things for the people that he serves and the people that he leads. So, two points that I want to try to make in these three verses. Number one is that all of us are given a position with a purpose. All of us are given a position with a purpose. And that number two, whatever position that we have, that purpose that we're to serve is made possible by God's Word. We have a position with a purpose, and our purpose is made possible by God's Word. So before we even get back into the verses, consider then what your position in life may be. And there may not be a single position. It may be multiple. For Paul, Paul could say, well, my position, my calling, my office is that of an apostle, is that of a pastor. All right, yours may be, your office or your station in life may be that you are a husband or a wife or a parent or a grandparent. You could be an employer or an employee. You're a church member. You're a citizen. You have all of these stations or offices, these positions that God has placed you in, and I want to try to encourage you to think that whatever position or positions you may hold or whatever responsibilities that you may have, that you ought to develop and cultivate in your mind something of the mindset that we see of Paul here, that wherever you happen to be, whether it's on Sunday morning or through the weekday or on the weekend, you're viewing everything that you do, your roles and your relationships, as filtering in to what Paul says he's been called to do. So what is that? Paul says, verse 1, that he is a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for, here's the purpose, here's the goal, for the sake of the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So Paul, what, what are you here for? What, what has God put you in this office, what, what responsibility do you have? And although Paul could say any number of things, and he does give other responsibilities that he has, at least in this letter to Titus, he says that I see my role as being primarily given over to benefiting God's people in the terms of serving their faith and their knowledge of the truth. Now, 
I'll, I'll come in just a second to this idea of Paul living and serving and working for the sake of the faith and knowledge of God's people, but I, I want to say something about God's people here. All right? Paul refers to God's people in this opening as those who have been chosen of God. If you're reading from ESV, I think maybe NIV talks about God's elect, okay? This is not a new concept. This is something that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, right? God chooses Noah to save him from the flood, him and his family. God chooses Abraham to begin a new work of redemption in the earth. God chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. God chooses David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, rather than all of the older brothers. God chooses Israel as a people that are His prized possession. There's something special to Him. There's a unique way in which God works with and for those people that makes it distinct and different. And in the same way that God's chosen people in the Old Testament were recognized as the nation of Israel, God has a chosen people in the New Testament which we recognize as the church. Now, here's, oftentimes, here's the dilemma. We get to language like God's chosen people. Paul says, I, I work, I live, what I give my life to is God's chosen people. And that feels awkward, right? We're democratic, egalitarian, Western, equal rights kinds of people. We want a level playing field. And for Paul to say that I give my life to the ones that God has chosen sounds just a touch elitist, right? It seems a bit too narrow. Well, Paul, what about all the other people? And so oftentimes you read a phrase like this and you hear Paul saying, well, you know, my life, my ministry is devoted to God's chosen and you begin to feel a little awkward or a little uncomfortable. Let me, let me share with you two reasons why this kind of language or this kind of mindset ought not to make us feel uncomfortable, ought not to be read as something narrow and constricting, but actually, when rightly understood, actually makes us more generous in our interactions with people. All right? Number one, for Paul to say that my ministry is devoted to, my life is given to the benefit for the sake of God's chosen people is itself an acknowledgement that Paul does not get to choose who he will and will not serve. Right? Paul did not choose these Christians living on the island of Crete. God chose them to be His people. By the way, do you know what kind of people these Cretans are? Right? Some of you already heard it right there. Cretans. Cretan Christians. Look down, just for the sake of time, we'll touch on this a little bit more as we go through, but look down at verse 12. Paul says, talking about the people of Crete, Cretans, one of themselves, a prophet of their own said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's the pool of applicants that God had to work with when He chose a people for Himself on the island of Crete. Cicero, back a hundred years or so before Paul would have been on the scene, said that in his day, the island of Crete had become known as a hangout for thieves and pirates. That piracy was actually an admirable line of work for people who lived on Crete. The, the Greek-speaking Mediterranean world actually coined a term where they took Crete, Cretan, and they turned it into a verb, to Cretanize. To Cretanize, to, to live like a Cretan, which meant to lie. If you wanted to accuse someone of lying, you're saying, oh, you're acting like a Cretan. Paul says, my life, Titus, as I write to you, on the island of Crete, surrounded by Cretans, my life is sold out for the benefit and the sake of those Cretan Christians. Not who I would have chosen, but that's who God chose. And because those are God's people, I'm giving my life to serve them. People, you look around this room... And one of the things that we need to continually remind ourselves of is the fact that, yes, there are people that we will rub shoulders with within the body of Edgewood that will sort of rub us the wrong way. It will be like oil and water. I just don't mix well with him or her. Therefore... I will not give my life to him, I'll give my life to them. It doesn't work that way. You and I do not get to choose who we will and will not serve. Anyone who names the name of the Lord, anyone who has been made part of his people, counts as someone that I give my life to serving. Do you get that? And it really makes no difference at all whether or not they seem to be worth your time or effort, whether or not you think that God made a mistake in bringing them into this body or not. The fact that they are here means that if you're going to imitate Paul and the example that he's setting, following the example of Christ, that you're going to humble yourself and say, if God has been gracious enough to choose to bring them in, I will be gracious and serve them. The second reason that thinking in terms of giving your life over to those that God has chosen is not going to be a narrow, restrictive thing, but it's going to actually make you big and generous and even bold in your service is because that there is 
one sense in which God's chosen people have already been brought in, but another sense in which God is still bringing chosen people into His body, and we don't know who that is. So in Acts chapter 18, Paul has gone to Corinth, and the Lord appears to Paul and says, and I'm paraphrasing here, Paul, don't be afraid, don't fear anyone in this city, remain here, because I have many people in this city who belong to me. Paul will later say in a letter to Timothy that he endures all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Do you live your life, do you, do you interact with people here within Edgewood, seeing them first and foremost as someone that God has chosen to pour His love upon? And if God has chosen to give His love and His grace to them, what right do I have to withhold my love and my grace? Do you look at others that you bump into in the workplace, at the mall, at Walmart, on the playground, in the classroom? Do you look at them? Do you ever wonder? I wonder if they might be brought in and be shown to be part of God's chosen people. Maybe that's why you're there. Not so that you can say, oh, well, he or she is not one of us, but to say, oh, but he could be one of us, and to invite them in. But whatever the case, Paul says that for the sake of God's people, I'm serving, and what I'm working towards, my aim is, as he says in verse 1, it's for the faith and the knowledge of the truth of God's chosen people. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Everything that I do in my work, I want in some way to strengthen, to deepen, to firm up the faith and knowledge of God's people. These two things are not mutually exclusive, right? It's not as if Paul is saying, well, there's faith here, and then there's knowledge of the truth over here, and one day I'll do a little bit of faith work, and another day I'll do a little bit of knowledge work. But these two things probably ought to be seen as complementary. Right, let me give you a good example. Hold your place here in Titus and go to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, 1 Paul says, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You hear that? That's, that's faith language. And then he goes in verses 3 through 11, and he says, here is the message that you believe. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and He appeared to many of His followers, right? 
That's, that's the faith component. But then what does Paul do, starting at verses 12 through verse 58? What does Paul spend all his time talking about? He says, you believe that Christ died and was raised again. Now let me tell you what that means, why that's significant, why it's important. In other words, it's not just enough, it's not sufficient to bring someone to receive a basic minimal faith. That's the starting point. But there needs to be a way in which God's people are always interacting with each other so that their faith is being better shaped and informed by the truth of what God has revealed. Our faith ought not to be simple and shallow. It ought to be deep and heavy and meaningful. We ought to be able to think through the implications of our faith. What this means for me as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a co-worker. Do you think about your interaction with your fellow brothers and sisters in this light? Do you think that the reason that God has placed you here in the body of Edgewood? Parents, do you think that the reason that God has given you your children or grandparents, your, your, your grandchildren, do you think about the fact that the people that you work with are there because God wants you to both introduce people to faith in Jesus Christ and also then to build them up in that faith so that it is deep and strong and robust. Are you doing that with anyone? Is there anyone in your life right now that you say, one of the things that I, that I consciously I actively seek to do with them is to try to build them up in their faith and their knowledge of God's Word. Do you have anyone like that in your life? All right, this, is, this is not, I don't, ask, I don't ask that question to heap guilt or condemnation on you. Rather to say, if, if you do have someone that you are investing in in that way, good, continue to do so. If you don't, consider the fact that God may be wanting you to do this sort of thing for another brother or sister in Christ. Let's flip the question on the other side. We ought to then also consider asking ourselves, not just do, do I think about others this way so that I can invest in them? Am I, am I living, am I serving them in their faith and their knowledge of the truth? But then also, are you in a position where that's being done to you? Or do you think that you've arrived and you don't need anyone else's input or help? It's just me and God and we've got it from here. There's a way in which what God has done by creating this body here at Edgewood is so that this sort of thing can happen. So that in our interactions with one another, when we sing, when we talk, 
when we read, when we pray, that what we are wanting to do is for the benefit of our brother or sister, we are wanting to see them grow in their faith and in their knowledge of the truth. And in turn, I'm coming here spending time with this body because I need this body in order for my faith to grow and my knowledge of the truth to be deepened. We need one another. But we need to think consciously about the fact that this, ought to, this type of thing ought to be done. Otherwise, we're just going to drift in on a Sunday morning and drift back out. We'll drop in on a Bible study. We'll drop back out. We'll check in on Facebook or the website. We'll catch the sermon that we miss, and that's little to maybe as much as what goes on. Do you think about the fact that God has placed you where you are for the sake of someone else? That God intends to use you to grow them in their faith and in their knowledge of the truth. Let me say just one other thing about what Paul says about this faith and knowledge of the truth. A big major theme of Titus, which we've already alluded to, is that this faith and knowledge that we have is meant to produce godliness. You see what Paul says in verse 1? That he's working for the sake of the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. As you grow in your faith and in your knowledge, is that faith and knowledge making you more godly? Or is it just making you more intellectual? Does your faith and your knowledge of the truth work in such a way that it humbles you rather than making you prideful? Does it make you teachable, or does it turn you into the kind of person that says, everyone needs to listen to what I have to say? As you're growing in your faith and your knowledge of the truth, as you're causing others to grow in their faith and knowledge, is the result, the practical outworking of that growth, a real life change? If it's not, then I don't know if you really understand the faith and the knowledge of the truth the way that you think you do. Listen, if you're here as a young person, right, student, young adult, whatever it is, you have aspirations of being a budding theologian, Right? Which, which teen doesn't want to be a budding theologian? Right? It's what we all dream for when we're 16. Right? You want to be a budding theologian, but you can't carve out time to walk a senior adult to their car or to give them a ride to church. I don't know if you understand the faith and, the, and have the knowledge of the truth mastered the way that you think you do. Husbands, if your growth in your faith and knowledge of God's Word is not making you a better husband, you have reason to question whether or not you really are growing in your faith and knowledge. 
Wives, if you are not becoming a better wife because of your faith and knowledge of God's Word, you have reason to question whether or not you truly understand the faith that you profess. Children, young people, if you're not responding to your parents or those in authority over you with respect and the kind of submission that honors the Lord, you have reason to question whether or not the faith and knowledge of God's Word is really working on your heart the way that you say it is. Because Paul says that our faith and our knowledge of the truth is according to the pattern of godliness. He'll say later that there are many people who profess to know God, but by their deeds, by the way that they live, they show that they're lying, that they don't know Him. What I hope and pray for Edgewood, among other things, what I hope and pray for Edgewood is that God would be good and faithful to grow us in the truth of His Word, that, that, that our roots would go deep, that they would sink into His Scriptures, that they would drink it up, right? But that as that begins to filter into our hearts and minds, that 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 truth of God's Word, the beauty of His character revealed in Scripture would so transform us that we would be the most vibrant, welcoming, gracious, generous people, the most godly people that could be found in Columbus, Georgia. Not because we're above it all, not because we're too good to go slumming with the rest of the world, but because our hearts and minds have been so captured and transformed by the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ that the more that we drink that in, the more we're changed. Are you growing in your faith and knowledge of the truth? And are you growing in your faith and knowledge of the truth in such a way that it is making a visible, tangible difference in the way that you live your life? It ought to. Notice, though, the little phrase that Paul tacks on to the end of this, right? New Testament epistles are different than spending time in the Old Testament narrative literature. Old Testament narrative literature, right, much broader strokes in, in painting the picture. New Testament letters, right, very tight, very compact. Things are linked up by short little phrases. So Paul says in verse 1, that he's working for the sake of the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. The, the, the preposition that's used there, I'm going to suggest would be better read not in the hope of eternal life, but on the hope of eternal life. which means something like this. Paul is saying that as I am working to build up God's people in their faith and knowledge of the truth, all of this that we're doing that ought to be leading us to become godly, Christ-like people, all of this, the foundation, what it rests 
on is the hope of eternal life. So here's another little twist. What is it that spurs you on to grow in your faith and in your knowledge? If you just simply think, well, the Christian way of life just seems to be a noble, virtuous way to live, and that's why I do it. It seems to make more sense. There, there's not as much baggage that seems to come with the Christian life because we're, we're able to, to avoid a lot of the pitfalls or a lot of the, the heartaches and the brokenness that people find themselves in when they just give themselves over to sin. I don't want any of that. I'm not, I'm not dumb. Right? If, if your motivation to grow in the faith and knowledge of Christ is because you want a better life now, you're also off the mark. Paul says that the reason that we grow in our faith and knowledge is because we are building all of this on the hope of eternal life. Meaning, if you live an outstanding Christian life, virtuous, pristine, pure, you're, you are an erudite theologian, you are as lowly and as serving as Mother Teresa, and you do all this. You are just the model Christian, but you're doing it only because of what's going to happen in the here and now. You've missed the whole motivation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if it is only in this life that we have come to place our hope on Jesus Christ, we above all people are most to be pitied. What's it all for? What, what is this growing faith and knowledge for? If all of it ends the minute that you draw your last breath, why waste your time? But if all of this ultimately is being driven because at the end of the day, what you're hoping for is not something that's going to be found in this life, but in the life to come, that will give you the motivation and the fuel to press on through this life, growing in your faith and knowledge, because the more that you come to understand, the more confident that you are in the promises of God, the greater confidence you have in a future reward that you do not want to miss out on. Are you growing in your faith and knowledge because you say, more than anything, what I want, I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that in tasting and seeing right now, what I'm really wanting, my appetite just continues to be made ravenous for that day when I will drink in full from the river of His delights. Or do you just make modest improvements on your faith in your Christian life because, well, that's just what's expected of me? Where's the motivation? What is it that you're hungry for? What is it that you're seeking? I'll say again, this kind of growth, this kind of development is what Paul says he has given his life to. Let me put it at your feet again. Do you have someone in your life 
where this is the attitude and the mindset and the approach that you yourself take. I want to spend time with this person for the sake, for the benefit, for the advantage of their faith. Do you have people that you can gather around who are going to be able to do that for you? And as you and we and us continue to grow in our faith, are we able to say, the more I know and the more I understand, the hungrier, the hungrier and the more eager I get for something that this world cannot give me. God has placed us where we are, in whatever avenue, in whatever sphere of life or responsibility, has placed us there for the benefit of His people, whether they're already in or they are about to be brought in, and we ought to consider the role and the responsibility, the privilege that we have in giving ourselves for the benefit of others. Last point, and we'll do this briefly before we move to the Lord's table. How in the world does all of this happen? How do you build someone in their faith and in their knowledge of the truth? How do you do that in such a way that that faith and knowledge is cultivating godliness that continues to grow and expand and multiply? How do you do that in such a way that that godliness is creating a greater desire to be with God Himself? to get back to the source of this godliness that we're growing in. Look at what Paul says in verse 2, after talking about this hope of eternal life that our faith and knowledge is built on. He says, God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time, He revealed His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Let me boil it down in, in just a very simple way. I think that what Paul is basically saying here is that when you lay the foundation, the hope, the promise of eternal life that is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when someone comes to stand on that promise by faith, and grows in their knowledge and apprehension of what those promises mean, all of that happens for Paul by the preaching of God's Word. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. I don't think that what Paul means here by way of application is that it only happens in preaching, but that that's where it starts, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. It has to start there through the proclamation, but ultimately, Paul is always going to be coming back again and again and again to what God has said and revealed through His Word. If you want to know how to, how to do this sort of thing, how to serve the benefit, the long-term spiritual health of your brother and sister in Christ, you've got to give them the Word. You've got to go to them and say, 
I know that the world is saying that there are answers or there are techniques or there are methods here, but the only thing that I am convinced is going to give us life and give it abundantly is the Word of God that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Parents, as you're raising your children, as you're preparing them to go out into the world, Are you desperate to press God's Word deep into their hearts and in their minds? Or is your primary concern that they get into a good college, that they get a high-paying job? As you interact with people who are struggling with marriage difficulties and you have opportunities to encourage them or to come alongside of them and pray for them, is the extent of your hope and prayer for them just that they would have a comfortable, happy marriage? Or is it that through this time of testing and trial and even barrenness that God would cause His Word to richly dwell in them? There is no way that God's people can grow. There is no way that you are going to be used as an agent of change for God's people, for your brothers and sisters, or them for you, we for each other. There is no way that that's going to happen apart from God's Word. If you want to grow in your faith and knowledge, if you want your hope to be increased, in your interactions with your brothers and sisters, we ought to be developing the mindset where we say, at the end of the day, all of these other things are nice, but I don't care what else it is that you give me, please give me the Word. Flowers fade and the grass withers, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. We are a vapor that is here one minute and gone the next, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. The Lord dwells, He says, with the lowly of spirit, with those who are contrite in heart, and for those who tremble at His Word. Give me that. Please give me that. So as we go through Titus over these next several weeks, I would encourage you to think of the fact that all that Paul says here flows out of this overall view or perspective that he has on his life and ministry, that all that he says and does, he's doing for the benefit of other Christians so that they would grow in their faith, that he does that as a way to to show, to demonstrate to Titus, Titus, this is the kind of mentality, this is the kind of approach that you need to adopt yourself, this is the kind of lifestyle that needs to be cultivated in a local congregation where members are taking it upon themselves to seek out the advantage of their brothers and sisters. Let's turn our attention to the Lord's table now.
men, you can stay where you are. I will, I will let you know when we are ready to distribute the elements. Start in Titus chapter 1. Look with me just briefly again at what Paul says in verse 3, that God has revealed His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul has been entrusted with with the job, with the responsibility of proclaiming, of announcing God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says in verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then listen, listen to what Paul says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Do you hear that connection with Titus? Paul says, I was entrusted with the proclamation, with announcing God's Word, so that the hope of eternal life could be offered to all men, so that they could come and stand on the promise of eternal life by faith, growing in their confidence and in their trust. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11 that one of the ways that we announce and proclaim the truth of God's Word is by doing what we're about to do right now. We participate in the Lord's Supper in part so that we can encourage one another and strengthen our faith that we can remind ourselves that every time that we come and we take of the bread and we take of the cup, that we are feeding and drinking by faith on the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, and that because we are feeding and drinking on Christ, we will not be left to wither and die in our sins. That Christ has already paid for that, and He has paid for the constant renewal of our faith on a daily, weekly, even moment-by-moment basis. And we share in that together. Men, if you would come forward to distribute the elements. As the men come forward, we remind you this is first and foremost a covenant meal. This is something that God's people are privileged to take as a a sign, as a reminder, as a confirmation of our faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not out of any desire to single you out or embarrass you, we would just simply ask that in respect you would let the elements pass by you. But to consider 
that while you may not have been admitted to the Lord's table yet, you can freely be admitted by repentance and faith. And we would love to talk to you about that. Christians, do not partake of the elements just yet. Just let them sit with you until we can all partake together. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Your hope, our hope, is secure because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Take and eat in remembrance of Him.
And if you will take the cup, consider that your desire, your hope for acceptance has already been sealed and secured because Christ has shed his blood to pay for the price, the penalty of your sin, to reconcile us to God so that we could be adopted into his family. Take and drink. And now, Father, what can we say? We receive all things from you freely. We ask that you would help us to give freely. Father, as you are faithful to build us up in our faith and our knowledge of the truth, which shapes us into godly people. We pray that you would give us a desire to see that same kind of growth not only demonstrated in our lives, but in the lives of those seated next to us. That we would be eager and desirous to extend this offer of life and hope to those who don't yet know it. And we'll trust, Father, that because you have promised you will be faithful to cause all good things to come to us, that you will finish and perfect the work that you have started because of the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit who is at work within us. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 30 tells us that before they went out to the Mount of Olives, they, they sang a hymn. So I'm going to ask that you stand and we sing about the grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to dismissed.